good morning, everyone. I'm Belinda. I'm uh, a staff member here at Darling Street Anglican Church. Uh, this morning, I was down at St Mary's at the 9am service down there, and I was leading the service, and I had my iPad up front with me. And um, as I led the church in prayer, Siri was activated. And Siri said to me, I'm sorry, Belinda, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> First world problem, right? We all have them, don't we? Um, it's when your teenager stands in front of the open fridge door, looking into the fridge that's groaning with food and says, I'm starving and there's nothing to eat. And I'm sorry to blame the teenagers, because we all do. We all have first world problems. Um, one of our kids once whined to us, why do we always have to go on so many holidays? <laughs> uh, so what, what's the answer to first world problems? What's the antidote? I reckon, at least in part, it's perspective. I should have said to my ungrateful child, your perspective is limited. It's why parents say to kids who are not happy with the food on their plate, there are children in Africa who'd be grateful for this, you know, which is not really very helpful or practical, is it? But, but what they're saying is, if you had perspective on how things really are in this world, you might, be, you might change your tune, you might sing a different song. Well, as we um, come to the second in our uh, in the three sermon series on Revelation uh, that we're doing over these school holidays, uh, one of the great things about Revelation is the perspective it throws on the challenges that life um, throws up at us. And I'm not talking now about first world problems, but about those universal issues, about issues of injustice, issues of the vast imbalances of power and wealth that really only seem to be getting worse in this world, uh, issues about world powers jostling for supremacy uh, regardless of who or what gets trampled in the way. And of course, injustice on a personal level as well. Perhaps being bullied at work or having more than your fair share of pain and suffering, um, sickness or grief, while others seem to go unscathed. And uh, perhaps injustice that comes as a result of holding to values and behaviour that uh, is largely scoffed at. And in the midst of all of this, the age-old cry of where are you, God, is one that Revelation addresses and helps to answer and shows that God is going to fix it. Um, so for those of us who are uncomfortable with the idea of God's judgment or wondering if Christianity really is worth it or perhaps uh, wondering if evil is actually getting the upper hand, Revelation brings perspective. And I'm not talking about the Pollyanna-style glad game of looking on the bright side. No, uh, instead, seeing things uh, from a true perspective, seeing things as they really are. 
If you were here last week, then you'll remember a revelation is a prophetic vision and letter written specifically to seven churches in Asia Minor and uh, more generally to the whole church and written by the Apostle John in the late first century AD. Uh, It's a vision that was revealed to John by Jesus about what is, about how things are and what is to come. It's apocalyptic in style, meaning there's much symbolism and metaphor to decipher And John's vision draws heavily from Old Testament imagery, uh, imagery that his original readers would have been quite familiar with. And he also draws heavily from Old Testament prophecy. And in fact, in Revelation, he pulls together the strands of Old Testament prophecy and shows their fulfilment, shows them being wrapped up and completed. Now, chronology is tricky in Revelation. John's vision jumps around in time, and if you want to nail down uh, timing or ordering of events even, then uh, that's fraught. So we're concentrating on the big picture, and in fact, so big picture that uh, we're going to look at Revelation 4 to 18 today. 15 chapters or bust? Can we do it? We'll see. Uh, So, these chapters begin, sorry, I just, is this working? Oh, it's working, all right, that's great news. These chapters begin with John seeing a door standing open in heaven, and he sees into the throne room of heaven, as it were, and he sees someone sitting on the throne. And this throne is surrounded by 24 other thrones. Uh, On these thrones are seated 24 elders, uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament. That is, these 24 elders represent the whole church over time, the whole of God's saved people. And also before the throne are four very strange living creatures uh, who are reminiscent of the Old Testament Ezekiel's uh, vision also of four living creatures. Uh, They have divine qualities that are covered in wings and eyes and we don't really know what they are. But whatever they are, they seem to represent uh, all of creation worshipping the one on the throne. And the one on the throne, we gather from the clues, is God himself. So this is a magnificent scene. From the throne comes thunder and lightning and there are these impressive creatures uh, falling down in worship, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in the same way, these elders who sit on thrones and wear crowns, mind, so they're, they're reigning with God from heaven itself, they worship And the way that they worship is that they take off their crowns, they lay them down, they lay aside their own claims to authority and they fall before him and they proclaim his worth. And that's worship, by the way. That's that's where worship begins. It begins with putting aside our own claims to authority and saying, you are worthy, God, not me. So here, in the face of God himself, in the throne room of heaven, those present can do nothing but adore God. He's good, he's glorious, he's spectacular, he's holy, he's the source and sustainer of all things. And being in his presence, being with him, seeing him face to face means to recognise this, to be amazed and to humble oneself before him. 
Now, John, as we heard read, says that John uh, says that God holds a scroll, and the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And an angel calls out, "Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll?" And at first, it seems that no one is worthy. And uh, then an elder points out that actually there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And he says, "See the lion." of the tribe of Judah. We just sang about the lion of the tribe of Judah this morning. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and break the seal. It's seven seals. So John looks and he sees not a triumphant lion, but a lamb looking as though it's been slaughtered, standing in the center of the throne. And the lamb is Jesus. They're on the throne with God. And so now the elders and the living creatures are joined by multitudes of angels and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and they're all singing this song, singing this song which John calls a new song. And they're singing it to Jesus, proclaiming that you are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. With your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So we see here that Jesus' death is central. It's through his real physical death. So this is a spiritual reality, but it's also a real historical reality. Uh, Through his death, there is this way, uh, a way for people to be redeemed from the power of sin and death. And instead, be made into a transformed people with a destiny that includes reigning in partnership with God uh, on earth. And also Jesus' death qualifies him alone to be the, the one who can open these seals. And we'll come back to the scroll and seven seals a bit later. So this scene of the heavenly throne room is one that John returns to throughout the book. It's a scene that remains constant as um, cataclysmic world events unfold. God is on his throne. Uh, He's not indifferent. He's deeply involved with world events, but his position is unshaken. His deserving of worship is unchanged. Um, So, for example, chapter 7 describes the throne of God surrounded not just by the elders and the living creatures, but also by this great multitude of people. And all these people are worshipping God and they're dressed in white robes that signify that they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. And in chapter 14, we see this multitude is given a number. This is one of the mysterious numbers of Revelation, 144,000. Not a literal 144,000. Some people think it is, but I don't. And most evangelicals wouldn't say that that's a, a literal number. But instead, it's symbolic of this great mass of people who follow Jesus, singing again, a new song, the new song of the Lamb, following him wherever he goes, blameless because of his death. Uh, that's in heaven, but these 144,000 are also represented on earth. So also in chapter 7, John describes 
144,000 people uh, who are given a seal, different sort of seal than the one on the scroll that we heard read about. And this is a seal that signifies that um, these people are the servants of the living God. And in chapter 14, it's the name of Jesus that, uh, that identifies these people as followers of Jesus and thus securing their um, salvation and their identity as belonging to God, both on heaven and in earth. So remember, this is a metaphorical number, 144,000. It represents all those people belonging to God over time and whose destiny is with God. So that's all good, right? But Revelation also describes a problem. Uh, there's trouble on earth, there's sin, and there's injustice. And not everyone belongs to this number 144,000. Not everyone wants good to prevail. Not everyone follows God. And in fact, there is one in particular who actively seeks to undermine God, and that's Satan. So in chapter 12, there's a description of a woman giving birth to a son, and this is most likely a description of Israel producing the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, But also in chapter 12, there's a description of a great dragon, and John tells us that it's that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So this is the same ancient serpent Satan as we see right back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3. But here in chapter 12, Satan is enraged. He He tries to destroy this woman and her offspring, that is, those people who follow Jesus. And Satan is called the accuser because he accuses followers of Jesus day and night, furiously trying to undermine them and God. Why? Well, look at uh, 12 verses 10 and 11. Sorry, oh, have we lost it? It says, for the accuser... Have I lost? No, no. Oh, it's too big. I'm just learning to use this. Uh, Here's what it says. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So you see, Jesus' death and resurrection meant the defeat of Satan's realm. That is the realm of sin and death and the removal of the power of sin and death And so Satan is furious. He's furious because he knows now that his time is limited. He knows that Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated the coming of his final defeat. It's inevitably coming. And so it says he's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And this is one of the big things we learn from these chapters of Revelation. Satan is not the equal and opposite force of God. Uh, While Satan pulls out all the stops to rage against the earth, as we'll see in a moment, God is on his throne. The elders are worshipping and nothing hinders that. Meanwhile, Satan is like a toddler who's been denied a lolly in the supermarket. He's not getting what he wants, and so he's having this cosmic temper tantrum, screaming in rage, sweeping things off the shelves, uh, causing as much mayhem as he possibly can, because 
He knows he's been thwarted. He, he will not ultimately succeed. So he's doing what damage he can do while he can. So while Satan is not equal to God and he will be ultimately and absolutely defeated, in the meantime, he does have real power. It's limited power, but it is real. And these chapters of Revelation describe what that looks like. Here's what it looks like. In chapter 13, two uh, beasts appear. And uh, the legendary beasts of Revelation, the first comes out of the sea. It's given power and authority over all people everywhere uh, for 42 months. That is, for a limited period of time, once again. And this beast uses his power to blaspheme God and to oppress God's people. And it says that all those whose names haven't been written in the Lamb's book of life, that is, all those who do not worship God, will worship this beast. And this beast, for, for John, is, it, it's a veiled reference to the imperial power of Rome in John's day. Uh, but in a more universal sense, it could stand for any military or political power that demands complete allegiance. Then there's a second beast that comes out of the sea, it comes out of the earth, and it has two horns like a lamb, that is, it appears harmless, but it speaks like a dragon, it speaks evil, and it causes people to worship the first beast. And this second beast forces everyone to have a mark uh, with which, without which they can't trade. And this beast could represent economic power, uh, certainly a popular idol these days, but it could also represent the power of false religion. Um, that they are both um, good interpretations. And it says here that this beast number is 666, the famous 666. Some people say that that's a code to mean Nero, and if you use the letters of the Greek alphabet and write Nero, then add them up and it works out to be 666. I don't know about that. Uh, another um, uh, uh, interpretation is that 666 is a number that falls short of God. As, as Satan falls short of God, and God is a trinity and the complete number is in the Bible is seven, seven represents completeness, then uh, Satan's number is 666, um, which is uh, Satan's attempts to be God but to not actually make it. You can make up your own minds. Go do, could do some more reading if you're curious. Whatever the case, um, what's behind each of these beasts is the dragon, Satan. Satan wants people to believe that military power is God. He wants people to believe that economic power is God. He wants people to believe that anything is God other than God. So, are we all going to get barcodes tattooed across our foreheads? I don't think so. Maybe. Could be proved wrong. But, but really, why would that be necessary? The world already does worship economic power, doesn't it? We are deceived, largely, that money is what we need, more money, or that we need to produce more or consume more, whatever the cost, even if that comes at the expense of children being enslaved, like, like in Ghana. So this song, this song of worship to the economy, is an age-old song. For the Apostle John, it was the song of Rome. 
for us? Well, it's the era changes, doesn't it? But that song of worship to other than God doesn't change. In chapter 17, uh, John sees a woman who is drunk on the blood of the saints and dazzlingly decorated and yet adulterous, blasphemous, abominable. And she is called Babylon the Great. John's probably thinking of Rome again here. In the Bible, stemming from the era of the prophet Daniel, Babylon was a centre of godlessness and thus, uh, and brutally swallowed up other nations in her own quest for power. But Babylon presents as attractive, like this woman here, a beautiful woman, alluring. As with the beasts, a lot of people are taken in. And chapter 13, for example, says that the whole world is astonished by the beast. The inhabitants of the earth worship the beast. They're enslaved by this allure of what seems to be on offer. But it's all a deception. And this is a picture that Revelation holds up. On one hand, uh, Babylon, any power that from an earthly perspective looks successful and impressive, But really that success, that that impressiveness is just a thin veneer covering a corrupted institution that's indifferent to human need. And then the other one, from an earthly perspective, looks weak. A slain lamb who conquers enemies through love and peace and forgiveness. But through a heavenly lens with a true perspective is spectacular and delivers freedom and joy Also in Revelation, there's a remnant who follow Jesus, um, albeit while living in Babylon. And in chapter 11, uh, John is told that there's two witnesses, and these two witnesses will be given power to prophesy for 1260 days. That is, for a limited period of time, these two people will point to Jesus, they'll be protected from harm and will be given supernatural power, and when they finish their testimony, a beast will come from the abyss, kill them, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat and celebrate, but after three and a half days, they'll be raised to life again by God. Any questions? Uh, These two witnesses are alluding to the Old Testament, to Moses and Elijah uh, type figures. And it could refer to two individuals who are martyred as they tell about Jesus, but more likely is that these two represent the church, the community of believers, uh, followers of Jesus who faithfully represent him and who may indeed seem to be subdued by powers of evil evil that are depicted here as the beast. Uh, But this defeat is in appearance only and haven't we seen that? Don't we see that in China for example where over centuries um, there have been attempts to push down Christianity, to crush it, not to allow it to, to thrive. But instead the church has flourished There are tens of millions of believers in China today. So the church witnesses to the hope of Jesus. The church offers true perspective. And actually, many people, Revelation tells us, will glorify God as a result of that witness. So although Satan's rage, yes, will be turned on the church and on these the, the witnesses, then the the church will not be defeated. 
Okay, back to the scroll uh, with the seven seals that only Jesus was worthy to open. Jesus does open the seals, each of the seven, and when he does, there's a releasing of catastrophic events, earthquake, famine, uh, war, persecution of those who follow Jesus. In chapter 8, the opening of the seventh seal triggers the sounding of seven trumpets. And at the sounding of the seven trumpets, more disaster is unleashed. This time it echoes the plagues in the Old Testament um, exodus, so God's great deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. There's hail and darkness and locusts and the sea turns to blood. And then in chapters 15 and 16, uh, we see seven bowls poured out. And again, these echo the Old Testament exodus. So these three sets of seven each describe the same events but from a different angle and and they represent warnings or perhaps opportunities for people to see God's power and to turn to him Uh, or judgments or removal of evil or maybe all of those. Each one is more extreme than the one before and they build up to what seems like it's going to be a final showdown. So by the time this final bowl is about to be poured out, it seems as though there's a question about who will win, God or evil, or good or evil, God or Satan. And so all the kings of the earth gather in a place called Armageddon, and that's just a reference to a literal ancient battle place um, used here as a symbol. And... The kings of the earth gather for battle against God. But instead of a battle, what happens is that the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl and a voice from the throne says, it is done. And some people think that that what this means is that Armageddon represents Jesus' death on the cross. Remember, he cried out, it is finished. Whatever the case, there's no battle. It's a complete anticlimax. The great city Babylon collapses, civilizations around the world crumble, and an angel declares from heaven that the seemingly invincible Babylon is fallen. That is, evil has fallen. Her arrogant boasting has received its reward. Her corruption and deception that has led whole nations astray has been put to an ultimate end. And then finally, John sees a scene of angels reaping the earth, the final cleanup. Uh, the final cleanup day has come, this, this day when God says, enough, no more evil, no more deception, it is finished. And now everyone will see things as they really are. So here's a question, is, has this happened? Is it happening now? Will it happen in the future? Answer, yes. All of those. Some now, some happen, some in the future. And I want to talk about that more next week. So, if all of this is true, and I believe it is, then even now, at this very moment, there is a great throng of people and angels and crazy supernatural beings And they're all face to face with God himself, seeing things as they really are. They're in heaven and they're singing a song, a new song. And you know, in the Old Testament, a new song, whenever it talked about a new song, it was a song of deliverance. 
was a song of praise to God after his people had been delivered. And that's our song, church. That's a song of deliverance, a song that is a response to a new perspective, to a new awareness that Jesus is alive, that his blood has secured deliverance from sin, deliverance from death, a song that declares that no matter how dark things seem, Satan has already been defeated, that all will be set right, and that evil cannot triumph. It cannot. And in fact, in Revelation 12, 11, it's Jesus' blood and it's the word of testimony that overcome the power of evil. That's our song, a word of testimony. That's the song that we sing And it's a song that bears witness that there is a way out. And it's a way that chooses love and forgiveness. It's a way that looks weak. It looks as insignificant as a lamb. But it's the most powerful way there is. And that new song, living that song out, is what conquers evil. It's what puts an end to injustice. It's what beats pain and hatred and fear and tinges grief with hope. And this new song is a song freely given to us by our Lord and Lamb, Jesus, for his glory and for the good of this whole world. Amen. Well, on that note, we stand and sing together. So let's stand and sing God's praises.